Congregation, our scripture reading this afternoon is taken from 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Currently working through a series on the life of Elisha in my home congregation. and This is one of the sermons we came to. This passage of the first seven verses of 2 Kings 6. We'll read them together. And there we read the word of God, and the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore he said, pick it up for yourselves. So he reached out his hand and took it. Beloved congregation, the passage just before this, in the end of chapter 5, is the account of Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. And he's going out from Elisha's presence, a leper as white as snow, punished not only because he had misrepresented Elisha and the Lord and his grace, but he had placed his trust, remember, in riches, and his heart was on the things of this world. And I think it's important as we look at the passage before us this afternoon that we realize that there's a contrast here between Gehazi and these sons of the prophets. It's a contrast we really can't ignore. Gehazi had trusted in in riches, not God, and the results were bitter. But here we find men who trusted God in their lives, and the results are sweet. And so let's consider this afternoon this story of the iron axe head that floated. The iron axe head that floated. First, we'll see the context for this miracle, and second, we'll look at the meaning of this miracle. Elisha is most likely in Jericho. And he's spending time there with the sons of the prophets. And during his stay, we are told that these Young men, these seminarians, we could call them, they come up to Elisha and they approach him because they have a problem. It's a good problem to have. They've grown. They've grown so much that they had outgrown their present facility. And they really felt the need to do something about that. They had to build a larger place to dwell. And now it's wonderful when the Lord gives growth But the growth here is not only wonderful, it's remarkable. 
Because what kind of time are we living in if we live in Elisha's time? A time in which Israel had turned from God. Uh, we have to remember that wicked Queen Jezebel is still at court. Persecution still threatened. And we might expect during times like that, that the church and her seminary would downsize. But instead, these sons of the prophets are growing. That's telling us something, isn't it? This isn't artificial growth. This isn't growth for reasons other than spiritual life. This tells us God is working in remarkable ways. Working in more and more young men, drawing them even to become preachers and prophets, so much so that their seminary needs an addition. How wonderful. And before we, in our time, grow a little despondent and discouraged by everything that's going on in the world around us, look up. Don't forget God. God is able to, and He is doing, great things. Let us be faithful, like Elisha was. And let us pray God to work, so that the darkness around us would be met with gospel light. And what happens to darkness when you shine light on it? It scatters. God has committed unto us the gospel truth. Let us not be ashamed of it. Let us not hide it under a bushel. Let us be faithful with it. And who knows what he will do. Let's not be afraid that persecution or hostility will be bad for us. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Don't be surprised even if that happens. Persecution can come in, in different ways. But instead of destroying the church, it always has the effect of purging and growing the church. You've heard the saying, I'm sure, that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Did you know that in spite of persecution and opposition, today it's estimated that there are over 30 million Protestant Christians in China? Just think about that for a minute. 30 million Protestant Christians. That's the around just under the entire population of Canada. All Protestant Christians in China. God is working right through persecution. Well, these sons of the prophets propose to Elisha that they begin a new building project and they want to go to the Jordan, which was some distance away, but not too far. Jericho lay near Jordan. They want to cut down lumber and they want to build. Notice that little phrase. Every man a beam. Verse 2. That's a wonderful little phrase, isn't it? It shows they're all going to pitch in. They want to work together to get this project done. What a beautiful picture when there's, there's willingness here within this, what we could call church family, to work together and to assist one another in 
the life of the church. In their spiritual life, no doubt they encourage one another, but also in the practical, day-to-day, material things. They're going to build a place, and they're not going to contract it out. They're going to do it together. They're going to go down there, and every man's going to take his beam. And it's an important point for us to, to consider. Every church has needs. Every church has people within it to meet those needs. God gives each one of us different gifts, different talents, and different abilities. And we may all contribute, each in their own way, to the building up of the church. There's nobody that doesn't have a gift to use. Everyone has something to offer. And maybe you can't handle a a, a hammer or a saw because you don't have the gift or you're, you're not young and strong anymore, but it might be a gift like listening patiently. You may have the gift of empathy, of real understanding, and be able to come alongside someone and say, hey, I know you're going through a difficult time. Do you want to talk? You have a sense of someone's needs, maybe sensitive to their needs, and, and offer counsel or, or listen and give counsel. Whatever it is, the Lord calls us to use it for the good of His church so that the whole building of His spiritual church, which is His people, functions harmoniously and supports one another. While Elisha, he has no objections. He answered, go. Approved. Go for it. This is a wonderful idea. Go. It was the word you could say they'd been hoping for. And now they have the prophet's word and, and now they have the Lord's blessing. So they're, they're happy, they're satisfied. All that is except for one, this one young man, when he hears this in verse 3, he, he, he has to ask one more question. It's a beautiful request that he has because he senses we're missing something. He says, please, please consent to go with us. He wants Elisha to go with them. He, he desires that, that Elisha would be present with them. And, and, and in asking that question, this man shows that he understood an important spiritual truth. He didn't want Elisha with them because Elisha was such a skilled laborer. We don't know if he was. He was a farmer in his earlier days. He may have been helpful in that regard. Uh, but because Elisha was the man of God, as he's so often called and, and called that also in this passage. You see that in verse 6. He's the man of God. And so having Elisha with them was like having God along with them. And he recognized by that, that without God, without God's blessing, all will be in vain. It's true for us too. Our best intentions, our most noble projects, our, our great projects will be in vain without God. We need the Lord. And this man shows us that. In fact, he stands here on the pages of this history. And this man rises out of this text. And he's pointing you and me straight at God. And straight at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's teaching us. We too. We need Christ. We need the Savior. We need the Lord and His blessing in our lives. In all our endeavors, do you have that desire in your heart? 
and all that you do, do you make this very request of God, Lord, go with me? In your life choices, in your, the plans you make, in your decisions, do you factor God in? Do you say, Lord, please go with me? Be with me. It was the question Moses asked. God had sent him out from Sinai to go up to the land of promise. And then Moses, remember, he said to the Lord, Lord, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Moses couldn't go. He didn't even want to go without the Lord. It was, it was non-negotiable for him. He needed God. And, and so do we. Do you ask the Lord then to go with you in your life? Do you pray in the morning that the Lord would go with you through the day and, and assist you? Because we need him so much. And Jesus taught his disciples that too, didn't he? He told them, without me, you can do nothing. We can work and work and work and put in all kinds of time and labor, toil, effort, energy, applying our resources. But if we don't have the Lord blessing it, in the end it comes to nothing. And it's a humbling thing, you know, to ask the Lord to go with you. Because it's a confession that you don't have enough in yourself. But it's true. We don't have enough in ourselves. And we need the Lord. And the Lord is ready and willing to go with us. Just like Elisha here. These, these young men will find that what Proverbs teaches to be true. The blessing of the Lord. It maketh rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. And that's true spiritually. And it's true for the material things of this life. The Lord adds his blessing, and then we have everything. It's true in church life. And all we do as a consistory in our decisions and discussions, in caring for the flock of God in this place, we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the church's work, preaching, teaching, ministering, being a light in this dark world, we need the Lord for all the, the programs we can start and the activities we can be busy in. Let this be our prayer, our cry, that God would manifest Himself among us, that He would be present, that He would be at work, that He would own this work, and He would be with us. And as I said, He is so willing. Just like Elisha here. Look at His answer. I will go. I'm coming. For sure I'm coming. I'll gladly come with you. What a picture he is of his master who's also so willing. The Lord said to Moses, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give you rest. And it was especially that centurion who was pleading for Jesus in the Gospels. Remember that centurion, Please come with me to heal my servant. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And he's still the same today. He's so willing to go with us in our lives, to be present wherever, uh, wherever we go and in whatever we need. And so Elisha goes with them. And we find at the end of verse 4 that they're, uh, they arrive to, uh, to Jordan and they find a, a suitable building 
place, a plot of land, and they begin to clear the shrubbery away and moving rocks and dirt and leveling things out. And they're starting to cut down trees that are planted there along the river's edge. But as the work is underway, suddenly an axe head flies off its handle and plunges into the nearby Jordan River and it sinks to the bottom out of reach. And the man, notice what he says. Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Notice what he doesn't say. <clears throat> he doesn't utter a word of frustration. He doesn't cry out in anger to himself. He doesn't call his friends. Say, guys, you've got to be kidding me. Look, at I've just lost this axe head. No, he cries out, Master. His instinctive cry is Master. It's to Elisha. It's his knee-jerk reaction. The instant reaction here is priceless. Are we like this man? When we have needs, when we face problems, when we are stuck, when something not good happens, what's our knee-jerk reaction? Is the Lord the first to hear from us? Well, we have to stand ashamed, don't we? How often we kind of come around to asking God when we've exhausted every other resource and we've finished up reacting in every other possible way. But like a little child when something goes wrong, our, our cries should be like daddy or mommy, like to God. That the Lord would hear from us instinctively in our trouble or distress, that we would trust Him implicitly with all the troubles in our lives. Does He hear that cry, Alas, Lord, help me. Or does He hear other things from our lips? Oh, how often we say things we shouldn't even say. We cry out to others or we say things and we, we forget to cry to God right away. Alas, Master, let's learn from this man and be, be taught again to go to God with our needs. He will never, ever fail us. He always hears us. He's the God who has His ears are open to the cry of all who cry to Him. And notice too how sensitive this man is. He's genuinely troubled that he lost this borrowed axe head. He's got good morals. He has a tender conscience. He doesn't just say, well, who cares? I mean, it was only an axe head and we could replace it somehow. No, he's concerned and he takes his responsibilities seriously and, and that's a lesson too for us. Children, as we're growing up and for all of us, really, the things that are committed to us in this life are things we need to take responsibility for. And we don't know the story here. Someone said that perhaps they only had one axe. That's possible. Uh, that would have made this all the more calamitous, I suppose. But at the same time, every man a beam seems to imply that more maybe have, having axes there. But the point is, this axe was borrowed, and whether they had lots of axes or only one axe, or whether the man he borrowed it from was very rich or poor or had hundreds of axes in his shop, it's not. the point is, He's faithful in small things. That's a little marker, isn't it? It's a little sign 
that this young seminarian will also be faithful in big things. He cares about these small things. That's a mark of someone who the Lord has worked in, who's conscientious. And so he cries out to Elisha here in distress. And Elisha, he comes and he says to him, where did it fall? What, what happened? Where, show me the place. He shows interest and concern and he, he's caring and he listens. And so much again like the Lord Jesus, isn't he? He's concerned. He is the Savior who turned himself about in the press saying, who touched me? He cared about that woman who didn't even want to be known. And he, he goes after her and he, he goes to Samaria because there is a woman. And he goes to Gadara because there is a man bound with all these devils. And he goes up to Tyre and Sidon and he goes and he meets people in their need. He cared for young and old, for Jew and Gentile, turning none away. No case was too little for Christ. He didn't say, oh, you're only sick with a fever. It'll get better. No, he went to Peter's mother and he healed her. No one was too small, too insignificant. He tested their faith. The Syrophoenician woman, she was a Gentile woman. And he, he tested her faith. But she was not beyond the scope of his, his great reach to heal and to help. Oh, woman, great is thy faith, he says. The Lord never limits his care. He never limits his concern. Nothing in your life either is too small for God. He knows the way that you take. He knows who you are. He knows your condition. He knows your struggles. He knows your fears. He knows everything about you. And oh, if you would turn to him saying, Alas, Master, you will find him turning back to you and saying, What's the matter? Let me help you. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. It's beautiful. You know, you've got these companies in this world and for reasons that make sense, I guess, but they only quote certain jobs. Some healthcare practitioners may only accept certain clients, only hire certain people, but the Lord doesn't operate in these limited, strictly specific ways. He, he, he helps all. He, he receives all. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. It's such a broad gospel, isn't it? There's no qualifiers attached. You'll help the weakest one with the smallest needs. Let all your requests be made known unto God. And so the man of God here, or the man here, he points Elisha to where he saw it splash into the water. And then we see Elisha doing something that doesn't seem to make any sense. He cut off a stick and threw it in there. And then, to the man's astonishment, the iron floats. A stick. There's absolutely nothing in the stick from a human perspective that could make the iron float. Nothing. And yet that's the means God chose to use. 
And what a humbling picture, because when we, when we are involved in God's work, when we are privileged to be used by the Lord in whatever way and place in this world, our own abilities and our own means and, and everything that's in us is, is to be compared to this stick. Unlikely weak means. Whenever the gospel is shared or the truth is spoken or someone has a need that you go to and you hear them out and you try to help them, who are you? Who am I? We're like a stick. What can be expected from you and from me? Nothing. And that's why God uses this stick. So that the results would be of God. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I'm just a clay pot. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God must receive all the glory. Paul was weak. He suffered much. He didn't have power to convert anyone. He was just a stick so that God might have all the glory. And so still he uses sinful men, sinful women, to testify of his goodness. We're powerless to do any good in and of ourselves. We are, we are weak. But the glory should be to him. Mothers, when you labor in the home, you're just a stick. What's to be expected from your weak means? And yet, God blesses it as you raise your children and, and, and all of us in our work and in our callings and those also involved in the work of the church. What an encouragement. It doesn't depend on us. It's not that we have something that we need to show and we need to do and we need to produce. No, we need to look to God who uses weak means. Weakest means fulfill thy will, mighty enemies to still. You have these wonderful stories from church history. I have to think of John Bunyan. He's being tried by this kangaroo court, by this mock trial. and He shouldn't be preaching, they say, because he's not approved. And, and they're just harassing him in the courtroom. And he's just, poor John Bunyan. And he's, he's just speaking Scripture. And he's meeting all their words with Scripture. And the picture is that of Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin. He's, he's speaking to them truth, and they can't resist it. And it cuts them, and they get so upset. He's just a man, and the Lord is using him. The Lord is helping him to speak. Nothing in him. Nothing in you, child of God. But he will use you to witness to others. Yes, you so that he might get all the glory. And we have this great misunderstanding that we think, well, I'm, I, I'm not really good enough or I'm not qualified enough to, to witness or to speak to someone or to do this or to go there or to help there. That's not the point. The point isn't if you're qualified. The point is, what can God do using weak means? Maybe you say, well, I'm old. I'm older I don't have much to give anymore to the church, to my family, to the society around me. Oh, but the Lord will use your small prayers. Maybe they're weak in your sight, but He hears them, and He will use them to work out His purposes in the lives of those around you. As you intercede for others, God will do great things. He's promised it. He will hear and answer prayer. 
And so it is before the, so it happens that before the amazed eyes of this young man, that steel axe head floats and he can take it. And he's got it back in his hand. Iron. It's an amazing miracle that if we were to go out and tell it to those on the streets of Willoughby this morning or this, this afternoon, I think there are many who would cast doubt on this history. Maybe some of you sitting here are actually wondering about the physics of all of this, about the fact that iron doesn't float, it sinks, it doesn't come up, and, and, and that very fact causes some people to explain away this story in a different way, to deny this history. And they do that on the basis of what they call a fact that the natural laws of physics can't be broken. But that's a mistake. It's a mistake for us to make our own experience in the natural laws of physics the basis for ultimate reality and for what God can do. It's deficient. Who are we to limit God? To limit God to operate within the bounds of our own experience. We can't do that. We can't limit God to the bounds of our own experience. It's true also spiritually, you know. God can do far greater things for you spiritually than you've ever experienced before. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above and beyond all that you can ask or think. He can give you fresh new experiences of His greatness, of His goodness, of His faithfulness, of His love, of His Son. There's more to be experienced than you have ever experienced before in God. Grace is vast. If we think that our spiritual experience is kind of it, and we're like a man who's standing here in the fields just south of here, and he's, he's been in one field, and he says, I've seen B.C. You could take him to places, on the tops of the mountains, in the north, and the, out to the ocean. You could take him so many places. He hasn't seen B.C. Our spiritual experience to God is infinitely beyond what we've experienced, and he's so good. That's spiritually, but neither let us limit God physically. Because when you begin to question a history like this one, you're automatically forced to question much of the Bible. You run yourself into all kinds of problems. Think of all the miracles Christ performed, or the resurrection, the incarnation, the ascension, the two natures of Christ in one person, the, the creation of the world. You see, the idea that physical laws are the first cause within which boundaries God has to work is a self-defeating idea. Because God is beyond all of that. He's the maker. He's the administrator of His whole creation. And He can work as He sees fit. And He can suspend the laws He's made without asking approval. In fact, one man put it this way, and I find it very helpful. What we call physical laws are simply God being consistent. Think of that. Next time you're doing a science experiment, you, 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 you come up against the, the laws of physics that 
We talk about the laws of thermodynamics. We talk about laws of electricity, Ohm's law, right, of, of, of electrical resistance. There are different laws, laws of gravity, and Snell's law about refraction of light, all these laws that we can repeat and observe and, and, and just keep repeating. They're there. It always reacts the same way. But they're actually just God being consistent. And it's a blessing that God works consistently because our world would be a disaster. It would be chaos if all these laws which we've discovered and which we've established would be in flux and would constantly be changing. It would be chaos. God is a God of order. And so he works consistently. He deals consistently in his creation. But just because he does that consistently, who are we to question when he decides one time to do it a little bit differently? So that iron becomes buoyant. Or so that Jesus decides he's going to walk on water instead of sinking into it this time. Who are we to bind God to his own consistency? He's free, you know, when you've made everything. You can do what you want with that. And so from the eye of God, a miracle is not a miracle. To the eye of man it is. But from the eye of God, it's just God doing things differently than he normally does them. And God is in heaven and we are upon earth. Therefore, let our words be few. Let us not limit God as we consider the physics of this miracle and say, well, that's not possible. We can't limit God. It is possible. Anything is possible with God. He is God. And that leads us to this thought. That our impossibilities are no hindrance to God. Here's the young man. He's standing on the bank of this river. And it's impossible. He can't get his axe head back. Here he is in debt. But God comes. The man of God comes. Where did it fall? And he throws in his stick. And up it comes. He says, reach out. Take it to yourself. Our impossibilities are no hindrance to God. And the point of this passage is not that when you lose your wedding ring in the lake, you've got to find someone like Elisha to get it back. The point is spiritual. God made you perfect and upright, but by your sin you've come into an impossible situation. You can't get out. I read the story of a hiker one time in the States who once fell down an incline, and he found himself in a deep natural bowl, and he couldn't get out. He died there. They found his body later. Steep cliffs all around. Couldn't get out. So you and me by nature, we're stuck. We can't reverse our sin. We can't change our state. We stand condemned and without help we will perish. And it's impossible from our side. We can't save ourselves. It's hopeless. We can never get our original righteousness back on our own. We can never pay for our sin. All for sin could not atone, says the poet. Spiritually dead sinners can't live on their own accord. They're sunk with that axe head beneath the waters of death. 
And they cannot rise, but right in that impossibility, the gospel message speaks, saying your impossibility is no hindrance to God. And God comes and He uses His Word and His Spirit to raise dead sinners to life. When there was no one to help, when they couldn't help themselves, Isaiah 63 says, and I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. God found a way. God found a way through our impossibility. He reached down from heaven. He sent down His Son. He broke through all the natural laws of our sin and rebellion. And he did something outside of his usual way of working. This was his usual way. In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. But then he went outside of that for our good, and he sent his son. manifesting in the greatest possible way that our impossibilities are not impossible with God. And this afternoon, that gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, comes to each one of us personally, rising, as it were, from out of the Jordan with that axe head and suspended on the water. This is how God works to save through impossibilities. God works way beyond your natural expectation of things in the saving work of Christ, far exceeding our expectations. God isn't limited to your ideas of salvation. He can do anything. Yes, He can save you. Maybe you think your sins are too many. Your sins are too great. You've crossed a line. That you're not able to be saved anymore. It might seem impossible to you. It might really seem impossible to you to be saved, ever. Because the obstacles are just too great. And you seem to be beyond any hope. But your condition and your sin, dear one, are no hindrance to God. He who can make iron swim can make iron hearts soft. And it is Satan who will tell you that you have sinned too much because he doesn't want you to discover the marvelous grace of the gospel. He doesn't want you to realize that there's someone outside the realm of your impossibility who can reach in and deliver you. Only turn to this God. Only plead the mercies of this God in Jesus Christ and you'll discover that nothing you've done or left undone presents any hindrance to this God because He said it is finished. He's done all the work for you. He says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions. I had to think as I was preparing this sermon of all the smoke that was in the valley not long ago. But one day in the middle of it all, we had a windy day and all the smoke blew away. And what a picture, isn't it? It's what God does with our sins. He blows them all away. We don't see them anymore. 
Today, the God who made the axe head to float is saying to you, come unto me. Just as you are with all your impossibilities and all your sin. And I will save for Jesus' sake. Amen.